At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A band from New Zealand, the Baths, took the indie music scene by storm in 2018 with their debut release, Future Me Hates Me. The group is on tour with their newest offering, expert in a dying field, and lead singer Liz Stokes talks with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes ahead of their Atlanta concert tomorrow, March 7th, at the Masquerade. First, Voltaire's work of philosophical satire, Candide, asks the tricky question, How do we maintain our optimism in a time of disaster? Here in the third year of our global pandemic, the Atlanta Opera continues its stellar 2023 season with a timely new production of Leonard Bernstein's Candide, bringing to the stage a fantastical comic journey through the triumphs and catastrophes of the title character's best-laid plans. Joining me now via Zoom to talk more about Candide are the director, Alison Moritz, tenor Jack Swanson, who sings the role of Candide, and Victor Ryan Robertson, performing several roles in this production, Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. The novella Candide, written by Voltaire in 1759, is a classic of philosophical commentary. Allison, some of us might not have read Candide since high school. Can you refresh us on the story as Voltaire wrote it? Of course. Well, it's a classic kind of hero's journey or picaresque tale where we have the title character, Candide, and he's kicked out of his original home in Westphalia, and he goes around the world and back to be reunited with his love and with his sense of self. And along the way, he meets a lot of people who challenge his initial ideas and ideals about the world. And he also encounters a lot of defeats and a lot of strings of good fortune. So it's a it's a very condensed, zany way of looking at life through a microscope and all of its kind of humiliations and all of its triumphs. Hmm. Voltaire's Candide represents the author's rebellious take on optimism, particularly the pious optimism of philosophers like Leibniz, who believed our world was the best possible God could have created. Voltaire's book was promptly banned for a period and considered blasphemous. Will you explain why Candide's pessimistic realism was revolutionary? Sure. I think 
there's a lot of philosophy and of course a lot of very sophisticated satire in Voltaire's version of events and in this production we're also seeing it through the lens of Leonard Bernstein and so I think Bernstein's view of philosophy is a little bit more influenced obviously by mid-century Americana and is maybe perhaps one step closer to today's audiences. But essentially we have three different philosophies represented over the course of the show. One is this, as we've mentioned, best of all possible worlds based on Leibniz. And that's represented by Candide's original teacher, Dr. Pangloss. And then the next extreme teacher is a sort of pessimist nihilist named Martin who says, the world is only torment. Everything is for the worst. Humans were made to drive each other crazy. And as in many great stories, eventually we find a middle path. And of course, this was just one of the many things that was, was very radical about Candide as a novella and also that was radical about Voltaire's work in general. We also have a ton of discourse about classism. Of course, this is a time when we're thinking about revolutionary society and changing the world order of how, how we rank people and what hierarchy even means, what the whole cosmology of the world is. So it's really interesting to see the amount of things that are absolutely ridiculous that we can kind of convince ourselves of in the name of fact or reason or logic. And so I think it plays very nicely with comedy on stage because, you know, there's that old adage that, you know, comedy has to be taken incredibly seriously in order for it to work. And that's really what's going on here is all of the things that end up being jokes are actually facts taken to incredibly illogical extremes. Mm. Bernstein's music for this piece is marvelous. Allison, you have won critical acclaim for your productions of works by Leonard Bernstein, Candide at Tanglewood during the Bernstein centenary in 2018, and more recently, you directed a production of Bernstein's Mass at the Kennedy Center. Which arias are highlights and best tell Candide's story? Oh, gosh. Well, I think that's kind of one of the hallmarks of Candide as an operetta, which is that it's an embarrassment of riches. All the tunes are so fantastic. It's incredibly famous for its overture. <laughs> have this wonderful through line in act one of Candide's lament, a theme that really brings us back to earth time and time again as our young hero learns lessons. And Jack sings it so beautifully that it really provides this wonderful contrast and this core of humanity that, you know, working with a lot of Bernstein's music as I have over the past, you know, five or six years is really central to Bernstein and his legacy. This this core of the humanist, not just an optimism, but an optimistic realism. I would also say like, I mean, we have Victor on this call. His tunes are an absolute highlight. He has some amazing numbers in act two that are just like the perfect pastiche of different genres of music. Bernstein called Candide an American Valentine to European music. So you'll kind of go around the world in 80 minutes and there'll be musical quotations from many things that are familiar to both opera goers and musical theater lovers. And frankly, people who just are well-versed in American music of the last century. So I think another absolute famous tune from Candide is Glitter and Be Gay, which 
is Bernstein's kind of answer or parody of Marguerite's aria from Gounod's Faust. So it has a lot of sort of histrionic singing that I think he's trying to say something different about what music and emotion can do than the original Gounod tune is doing. Play the role of the protagonist, our doomed optimist, Candide. How do you inhabit Candide as a three-dimensional character? You know, that's a really good question. I, I love the role of Candide because I love being able to play a character that can go through such an intense journey. And Candide is the one in this story who really not only brings himself through an entire journey, but kind of brings the other characters along with him and kind of teaches a story by the end of the whole piece. He's really learned his lesson and is trying then to almost become the teacher himself to the other characters to say, this is what life is about. I actually don't find it too challenging to find three dimensions of Candide, although he is, you know, in those formative years and wanting to learn and wanting to believe what he's taught from his teachers, he goes through so much and he meets so many people that teach him so many things along the way until he really hits a a breaking point near the end of this piece and kind of becomes, you know, we've talked about this in our rehearsal process where everybody finds this moment in their life where they establish who they really are and what they really believe and what they believe is important in life. And that's the amazing thing about this story is yes, it's a comedy and yes, there's incredibly funny moments, but the story itself is able to shine through through this character that there is a deeper meaning. So it's really not too challenging for me to find the depth in the character. You have received tremendous acclaim for your voice, highly praised for its sweet tone. And this is a role you've played before. Would you tell us about your previous performances as Candide and a bit about how you came to opera? Absolutely. So I'll start with talking a bit of about the Candide journey, you know, I've always loved singing Bernstein's music. I mean, a lot of people know West Side Story. So even as a, when I was first introduced to singing, I was introduced to pieces like Maria from West Side Story. And I I knew that I loved him as a composer and just singing the music. And so when I was asked to sing Candide in 2018, I sang it with LA Opera. And it was just an incredible cast, an incredible experience for me, and really one of my first real professional opportunities. So Candide, the role and the, you know, the opera itself really holds a special place in my heart. Since then, I have done a few concert performances of it, another semi-staged performance. And the fun thing about this piece is it changes with, with each cast. It feels like we're telling the same story, but it's an entirely different show. And it never gets stale. It never gets old. And that's, you know, I get to revisit this now with this incredible cast that we have in Atlanta. Victor is incredible in all of his roles. Kevin Burdett, Deanna Braywick. It's just so much fun 
you know, going into kind of talking a bit about how I started singing in high school, I was, I was involved in choir and my choir director said to me, I think you should, you know, try some voice lessons. I think it would be good because there was actually a solo in choir that none of us tenors could hit. It was just too high. And all of us kept trying and we kept cracking on it. And he said, I think you should try some voice lessons. And I, I ended up studying with a voice teacher in my high school. And he had me go back one day and listen to a recording of Luciano Pavarotti singing Vesti La Juba from Pagliacci. And I was totally sold. I said, I want to make sounds like that. To me, it was always about the voice that really brought me in. So, you know, I've been doing that ever since. Not quite Pavarotti level, but I'm doing my best. (laughs) (laughs) Where was your high school? I'm from Minnesota, Stillwater, Minnesota. Okay. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes discussing the Atlanta Opera's production of Leonard Bernstein's Candide with Allison Moritz, Jack Swanson, and Victor Ryan Robertson. Victor, you perform several roles, as we mentioned earlier in this production. Would you name them and tell us how you are able to move from one character to another with such versatility? Well, I think my characters beg the question, uh, is optimism really empty without the presence of struggle of evil? So I think my characters also represent the relentless energy to destroy that optimism, as it were. So there's a quote that says, liars don't see facts. They just adjust the facts. <laughs> and so with my character, Vandenberg, he's like, he's selling Candide a faulty boat he, that he knows is faulty. And that's kind of in parallel to what's going on in today with a certain news outlet who knew that they were selling false information and they did it anyways. And so, but my character is really interesting because he's not trying to make money off of it. He just wants to see disaster and to create chaos for the sake of chaos because he is pure evil. And I think that that's where the lessons that Candida is learning along the way through my character, through the Baron who kicks him out of the house through the governor who uh, enslaves Cunegonde, basically with the promise of marriage and wealth. It just, it talks about evil and why it's there and how it helps Candide broaden his scope of what it really means to be alive on this earth and share this community. Tell us more about the governor and how he disrupts the ill-fated love story of Candide and Cunegonde. I mean, he has a wonderful aria that is, I mean, it's almost like a press play. He says to every woman, like, I love you. And he gives the reasons why he wants to marry them and take them under his wing. And she she cleverly tells him, well, I don't want to give away the story, but she cleverly tells him that she might not be available for that, that request. But then he, he counters as well and says, oh, I think you are. And he says, <laughs> But again, he never marries her. So, but he keeps her for a few years under his uh, under his supervision, as it were. But I love that character because he's so extreme, actually, and he's so slimy. But the music itself is gorgeous. You have had quite a year already. You played a role in the opera X, the life and times of Malcolm X, the recording for that opera just earned a Grammy nomination. Would you talk more about that production and the role you played? Maestro Anthony Davis had written that in the mid eighties, but it was only performed once at New York City Opera. And so before the pandemic, actually, there was a co-production between, that was agreed upon between Detroit Opera, Omaha Opera, where Malcolm X was born, Seattle, Chicago, and the Met. So we had already performed it successfully in uh, Detroit and Omaha, and it'll be opening at the Met this winter. But that, the, the music itself is crazy. It's like a mix between Miles Davis and Strauss. <laughs> it's just <laughs> characters in this huge scene, Shoot Your Shot, that got a lot of acclaim was the character Street was introducing Malcolm X to the street. 
and how to hustle people. So he's a huge influence on my, Malcolm X. But then you had another guy, the second act, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who I also play. And that's completely Straussian. It's, it's just brassy. It's huge and more operatic as we know it. And he's the other influence on him. And I love playing both of them. They're extremely difficult and extremely different. And I think it's really nice to be able to blend the two styles like that. So it's been a journey with this opera and I'm sure it's going to continue to mold into something else as each opera company takes it on. I know the Met, they're changing a few things. And of course they're doubling the chorus, doubling the the orchestra, doubling the dance. Because they can. Because they can and they will. (laughs) (laughs) What an exciting time for you. Back to Candide, when it was first performed in 1956, Candide was not well-received. The Broadway premiere was considered a box office bomb. Why is Candide better appreciated now? That's such a wonderful question. I think it kind of goes back in a way to what Victor was saying about X, in that there are often really ambitious pieces that are kind of setting the course for a new way of blending styles or a new way of talking about something topical. You know, in the case of X, it's this classical kind of giant scope with popular music. And in the case of Candide, you know, Bernstein was really trying to find this type of American opera that blended popular roots and musical theater roots with the European canon. And so it's it's hard to get the tone right. And there are stories of, of operas that are incredibly famous now, you know, Madame Butterfly comes to mind that need to be worked and reworked because there's just too much of a good thing on opening night or it's the right message at the wrong time. And I think in this case, it was perhaps less about the audience not being ready for the message and more about this kind of really tremendous moment in the middle of the century in American music where the the boundaries were not so clearly defined. People were experimenting with putting classical music on Broadway in so many ways. And Candide was just one part of that. West Side Story is, is similar, but it was tremendously successful right off the bat. So because Candide was not initially a success, we have this kind of tremendous catalog of musical numbers and scenes that have been included and taken away and reconfigured throughout the years. And so kind of as as Jack was saying, every single iteration of the piece ends up having its own terroir, having its own footprint because we include different things, we cut different things, we feature different people. And it's really bespoke not only to to the city and the production, but especially to the cast and their comedic potential, their vocal talents, their dramatic talents. And that's one of the things that's so exciting about working on it as a director is that it it feels very collaborative. And also because it always feels relevant, no matter when I come back to it. When I first approached it in Tanglewood, it was, you know, the year of the Me Too movement. And I really had to kind of question, okay, well, what is funny about some of the sexual politics of this, you know? And I think every time there's been a new topic in the news that somehow Voltaire and Bernstein were completely prescient about. And we've had to find a way of figuring out, is this something we can laugh at? Or is this something where we have to just open a door to think about rather than laughing immediately. So I think because it's so complicated, people didn't understand it all at first. It's, it's a work that is very, very generous. And I think that can feel a little overwhelming at times. Hmm. It's astonishing to realize that Bernstein was writing Candide simultaneously with the music for his best-known work, West Side Story. Do you see these two pieces as spiritual siblings? I absolutely do. And I actually see 
a common structure, a common theme that also connects Candide and West Side Story to Mass later in his career in that, you know, ultimately the final moment is always about this catharsis, not just of an individual, but of a community and of taking responsibility and in seeing potential for the future. You know, Candide's anthem to that is make our garden grow. And it's incredibly famous. And I think there's a, a similar moment at the end of West Side Story. And even after the huge climactic aria that happens at the end of Mass, there's still a moment where voice by voice, he builds up musically a community where one person contributes, then another person picks up a line. And cumulatively, this musical statement of what we can achieve, not as a single block, but as a cohort of multiple voices is honestly it changes you on a molecular level to be in person listening to any of these amazing anthems that he wrote it really speaks to i don't know a uniquely communal spirit and 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 a genuinely optimistic spirit which i think is is central to candide and to honestly maybe bernstein's entire canon that was Alison Moritz, director of the Atlanta Opera's new production of Leonard Bernstein's Candide. She was joined by star performers Jack Swanson and Victor Ryan Robertson. Candide is on the Atlanta Opera stage through March 12th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes catches up with Liz Stokes, lead singer for the indie rock band The Baths. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. A band from New Zealand, the Bad took the indie music scene by storm in 2018 with their debut release, Future Me Hates Me. Pitchfork hailed the infectious album as one of the most impressive indie rock debuts of the year. The band is on tour promoting their newest offering, Expert in a Dying Field, and will be in Atlanta tomorrow, March 7th, at the masquerade, when City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes recently caught up with the Beth's lead singer, Liz Stokes, she explained when she first embraced her unique voice. I always liked it, but I didn't think I had a very nice singing voice. Like, I would sing a little bit as a kid. Yeah, and at, in high school, I, I was in a kind of folk band with my friends, but I sang... Um, BVs because I like singing harmonies and things like that but I didn't really think I had a good like lead vocal tone and I don't think it was until I started this band and I think it's when I made a conscious decision to sing in my own accent I guess which is something that 
growing up, like a lot of New Zealand music, like there was a bit of a little bit of cultural cringe, I think, and um, it was almost like the the more kind of American or, or like British or something, you could make your music sound, including your accent. It, it felt more real. It felt more like real music or something. But oh, I think, no. yeah, but I think we got over that a little bit as as a country. I feel like honestly, like Flight of the Concords probably helped with that. Um, I bet they did. Yeah, and now it's a bit more common. People still choose how to how to sing because you know everyone finds their own voice. But I think that helped me find uh, mine a little bit. It was just being comfortable singing in my own accent. Well, my understanding is that you and your guitarist Jonathan Pierce met in high school and started playing together. Then is that right? We were in like the school orchestra and stuff together, but we weren't in the same band. But he had a high school band, and I had a high school band. We would play some of the same kind of gigs around local dive bars or all ages venues and things like that. Are there a lot of all ages venues in New Zealand? No, I wish there were. There's, uh, I guess different cities have different um, infrastructure for all ages shows, but it's quite hard in New Zealand. Yeah. We don't honestly have that many here that will do anything under 18 and up. And still 18 and up sometimes is hard to find. Yeah, it's not great. We should be finding ways to make it more accessible at a younger age. Yeah, the idea of being able to go see a show when you're that young is thrilling. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. And it was nice to be able to play them as well and be part of the the local music scene quite young. It feels like I'm still part of that same music scene, which is, is really nice. That is really nice. Well, you are an excellent wordsmith. Your combination of witty and dark in your lyrics is very compelling. When did you start writing? Um, I remember I wrote my very first song that I wrote by myself um, in like a study period uh, when I was in high school. (laughs) I was in uh, year 11. Yeah, and uh, I kind of wrote the lyrics out and we played it with my high school band. I think I kind of liked it. I wrote a little bit more in high school and then I kind of stopped for a little while in university because I was studying. I was playing the trumpet and that was like my main instrument and I was kind of fully doing that. And then after university finished and I was kind of teaching trumpet and um, just playing in lots of different bands, Jonathan sent me an email being like, you should write songs again so that I can record them. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of how I, I started this. I was like, you know what? I want to be in a rock band. Haven't been in one yet. And now's the time, but I need to write songs for it first. So I spent about a year just like writing heaps and heaps of songs and they were mostly bad. But I think I knew that I knew that to make something good, you had to make a bunch of stuff that is not good first until you kind of find your footing. And that's so true yeah. and very wise. Do you still pick up the trumpet now and then? Now and then I do. I do it like a couple of um, gigs a year where I just like <laughs> have to practice for a week beforehand because it's a very physical instrument. Yeah, no doubt. And I'm sure your breathing techniques are different than your techniques for singing. A little different, but I find is that um, there's more in common than not, if that makes sense. But I think that's through, true of a lot of things. Like It feels like the more you learn about anything, the more it helps you with anything else. Yeah. Well, back to your songwriting. I heard you on NPR's All Songs Considered with Bob Boylan this past July explaining the title of your newest album, Expert in a Dying Field. And you stated that the idea had been bouncing around in your head for a while before you put it to use. Would you share the story behind that phrase and that song? Yeah. Um, I just thought about how um, you... I think at any age, I guess, but at my particular age, for some reason, it's like I have a lot of, you know, close friends, but there's a lot of people who used to be in my life who aren't in my life anymore, whether it's like old relationships or friends and whether it's like people who moved away or people who you just kind of lose contact with because of time. And yeah, it's just a kind of a weird, sometimes like painful experience knowing that you have all this, you have all this information about them and you have all this knowledge that you kind of built up over the course of spending time with them over over the course of a you know a lifetime and it feels like you kind of become an expert and then you don't know what to do with all that information hours of phrases i've memorized thousands of lines on the page all of my notes in a desolate pile i haven't touched in an age and i can Does it feel to be an expert in a dying field? And how do 
that was just something that I was kind of grappling with a lot, I think, just yeah. because you kind of miss people, even even if you don't miss them, like maybe they're out of your life for a reason or something, It's uh, <laughs> you still have all, all that stuff. What do you do with it? No, I totally get that. And it, and it adds to the heartache. Yeah, totally. Well, the video for that title track is great. And it shows the home of a vintage collector. I was so tickled to see the Viewmaster collection in the video. <laughs> and we see the vintage collector repairing many pieces of outdated audio equipment. I noticed a reel-to-reel -reel machine in there, old mics and mixers. And then I noticed that you are selling cassette tapes as part of your merch. Do you have an affection for vintage recording equipment? Um, Jonathan has much more of an affection for vintage recording equipment than I do. And that's how we know Larry, actually. His house it was it wasn't even a set that's just larry's house that's jonathan's he's his art house friend and he's uh who helps jonathan repair his microphones for our studio and his guitar in new zealand it's, it's an isolated place so if you had an amplifier and it broke or if you wanted if you wanted an amplifier and you couldn't get one because you lived very very far away from where they were being made you just had to kind of make it yourself and or fix it yourself and so there's a kind of generation here of people who had just learned how to do all that stuff and so Jonathan is very inspired by that. But we do have cassette tapes. I, I did grow up on the tail end of using them to like, I would sit, you know, by the stereo and listen to the radio and record the songs that I wanted to listen to with the DJ talking over the start. They just, I don't know, there's something nice about having, walking away from a show. Maybe you don't want a whole vinyl, or maybe you can't afford a whole vinyl, but you can have a tape and you can flick through the liner notes and, and that kind of same way and enjoy that little part of, it, part of the experience. No, I get that. Holding something tangible is a big deal. Is there interior artwork on the cassettes? Like, is yeah. there a fold out? There is a fold out. It, it can't be as big as the vinyl because there's so much <laughs> more, but the lyrics are, we, we all, I always like to make sure the lyrics are in there. I know that people don't always do that now, but I feel like one of my favorite parts of um, <laughs> flicking through liners is, is just reading the lyrics and I make sure they're in there. We've mentioned that Jonathan also has played the role of producer in his life for the best. Does he still produce your music? Yeah, he does. He still produces us in his little project studio on K Road. Um, although this most recent record, he kind of co-mixed it with a friend of ours who lives in Wellington, whose name's Bevan Smith. And he's really great. Jonathan's still the mastermind of uh, engineering and all the mixing and that stuff. That sounds like it would be ideal for a bandmate to be able to fill that role. Does the dynamic work well for you? Yeah, it works great. It's kind of the foundation of the band, I guess, is like I write the songs and then we arrange them together and Jonathan records them. And the process kind of starts with me, you know, by myself making demos and like writing lyrics and stuff. And it kind of ends with Jonathan kind of by himself, just like, you know, finishing the mixing and auditioning the masters and everything and we all have input at all stages but it's uh it feels it's, it's very great for us and it's it saves us a lot of money i'm gonna be honest <laughs> Recording's not cheap but it's a lot cheaper when the recording engineer is in the bed so it looks like this tour goes on for a very long time i think i saw dates through october and you're even returning to atlanta in august to open for the national at chastain park May I ask what you like most about being on the road and what you most look forward to about going home? Yeah, we just, we really love playing. Like that feels like a kind of existential part of the band for us, which isn't necessarily for all musicians, you know, like people, a lot of people find joy mostly in like, say, like the creation of, of the music or the writing of it, which I really love as well. But like, we really do see ourselves as a live band and, and playing a lot and kind of getting really tight as a unit and playing together and trying to play a really good show every night. Um, that is a huge part of the appeal of being in a band for us. So we really do love touring. But I mean, we always miss home. But the thing we miss the most is probably just is the people, obviously, like family and friends. And also that that same music community that we kind of grew up in and feel a part of. It's, it's Sometimes it's hard being away because you start to feel a little bit divorced from it. Um, so it's nice to come back and uh, kind of get back into it seeing your friends' bands and feeling a part of that again. You mentioned really enjoying playing live mostly. I read once that you had played live for a year before ever recording. Is that right? Yeah, like at the very start, it's it was kind of slow process. Like I spent ages writing songs until I had like four demos that I could show to Jonathan and, and the rest of the band. And then, yeah, we just played around Auckland at our like local kind of dive bar venues and with 
bands, just doing, you know, the regular kind of local gigs that you do when you're a band and you're working full time. And you, we tried, I think we, we were trying to play like at least once a month. We recorded an EP, so after a year, and then we had an album, Future Me Hates Me, that we were kind of working on that whole time until it, <laughs> until it came out. Like the first EP and the first album, they came together really slowly, which Jonathan always says that he reckons that first albums are special because they tend to kind of come together like that. There's no time pressure. It's just like people taking the time and, and making something that they're really proud of whereas it feels like from then on you start to feel like there's a bit more pressure to kind of get things out within a period of time lead vocalist for The Beths, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. The Beths perform at the Masquerade tomorrow, March 7th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, speaking of dance... Our series highlighting local dance artists today features Alejandro Abaca. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series Speaking of Dance, where we shine a light on some of the many local dancers that move us with their movements. My name is Alejandro Barca. I am a contemporary dancer, movement artist, and educator. My formal dance training began in college at the University of Houston in modern and jazz that eventually expanded to choreography classes, ballet class, etc. But really, I consider myself a contemporary dancer because I just love the bodies capability and potential for movement. My first memory um, as a kid, maybe around four or five, was me dancing in my grandmother's living room. Um, now, my family tended to gather a lot around the weekend, and this wasn't a situation of us putting on a show for anyone. There was just music playing, and my cousin and I started dancing, and all the adults came in, and they were being entertained. And then eventually my cousin got tired and stopped, but there was something about their responses to what I was doing that further fed the urge in me to dance. And I just felt really in the moment and in my body and just so happy to make other people happy. And so eventually when I found my way back to dance, uh, when I was a little bit older in college, something in me clicked again with that feeling and it just kind of stuck. I have this thought that dancers can be conduits to the world around us, and it is our job or responsibility to be available and aware of everything inside us and around us. And so I am very inspired by the magic in the mundaneness of life. There's just so much around us, so much beauty to be noticed, um, even in the darker moments. Just have to be willing to slow down and see it.
There's so much freedom in the contemporary genre. Nowadays, contemporary dance, to me, feels like it pulls from everything. It pulls from ballet. It pulls from elements of jazz. I mean, it can pull from other cultural forms or modalities. It can take from yoga or gymnastics. I can integrate the many interests that I have in the human body in a movement form. I don't think I have a favorite move or specific move. Uh, There are kind of two things that I really enjoy. One of them is inversions or moving into my hands or going upside down. And the other thing would be partnering work. Uh, Both of these things, I think, are very physically rigorous and impressive on a virtuosic level. They kind of bend the laws of gravity, and I have to understand elements of momentum and weight in order to make these things happen. And so going back to this whole idea of magic in the mundane of, like, our bodies, which sometimes we can think of as these very limiting things, have so much potential. So being able to do a cartwheel or a handstand or to be able to lift someone up um, kind of unearths this uh, extraordinary that exists within our ordinary bodies. I enjoy Seeing performances at the Schwartz Center for the Performing Arts at Emory University. I've just seen so many things there, from student work to professional work. And each time I go in, I am always amazed at how they are able to shift the space to make it seem new each time. Plus, I really enjoy the intimacy of that space and feeling so close to the performance and the performers to where I get this visceral reaction um, from seeing things there. I'm in an immersive theatrical production of Pinocchio at Seven Stages, March 3rd through the 12th. Atlanta, to me, is a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. I feel like the art scene is interesting and daring and edgy at times, yet it's still close-knit to where you know people and you don't feel so estranged. Or it's not just one group getting attention. Contemporary dancer Alejandro Abarca, dancing to music from ESG and Caroline Shaw. More information about Abarca's work, as well as our entire Speaking of series, is on our website, wabe.org slash speakingof. The Jewish Festival of Purim begins at sundown, an observance celebrating miraculous events told in the biblical book of Esther. Children especially enjoy the holiday as they don costumes and use noisemakers every time the evil King Haman's name is mentioned. He's the villain who wanted to kill all of the Jews in Persia in the 5th century. Queen Esther is the hero who saved the Jews. King Haman's hat is commemorated in the form of Hamantaschen, triangular-shaped pastries that are delicious, and people of all cultures may enjoy those sweets. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Oh, tomorrow at 11 a.m., what a show we have for you. Rick Steves will join us for our monthly travel series, ATL Up and Away. Plus, William Shatner stops by ahead of his upcoming appearance at Atlanta Symphony Hall. And 
we'll hear about infinite realities, comics, games, and more. A showcase of over 40 original comic book art pieces from Georgia-based creators. If you missed part of today's show, like our earlier discussion of the Atlanta Opera's new production of Leonard Bernstein's Candide, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. change from shifts in power to a mental health crisis so with all this social change how do we balance the human desire for empathy the business need for productivity and the hope to make an impact in our community this is a new podcast the social impact leader i'm jeff Barker. join me as we explore people doing work a little different available every wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts w-a-b-e Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.